for leading us. It's funny because, you know, you put contacts in your phone and then you kind of forget who they are. Um, last year, I put Matt's name in my, in my contact list, and his name is in there now, Matt Shirley. But I, to, to make sure I knew who it was, I put him in there as Smiling Matt. So, <laughs> so you were Smiling Matt until, you know, maybe the end of last year in my phone until I, I finally got your name and everything linked together. So he's just Smiling Matt. Uh, thank you for, for leading us and here to worship. Um, it's been good to stay connected with him since last year and just to keep up with what's going on in his life and, and such. So we've been uh, walking through uh, what we see on the board over the last uh, few sessions. Um, we, we, we talked about if, in a family that we have to be born first in order to be part of a family. And it's the same in the spiritual realm. We're born again. We experience birth from above, so to speak. The Word of God is conceived in our heart. That seed develops maybe over a moment, maybe over a day, a week, a month, years. That Then when the, when the great physician deems right to induce labor, so to speak, there's a delivery. Our spirit, the spirit breaks instead of the water breaks. We're born again. We cry out in conversion, repenting and putting our faith in Jesus. We're justified at that moment and we are adopted into the... Uh, extended family of God, the universal family of God that's made up from people from many, many nations, tongues, and tribes, and that will one day be made up of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe as we gather around the throne. But as part of that extended family, we also are born into or should be born into a, a, a more immediate family, our local church, which ideally is made up of children, new believers, spiritual children, Ideally, should be made up of young men in the faith, young women in the faith, older women in the faith, older men in the faith who all play a role in maturing us and growing us and nurturing us, and we call that sanctification, sanctifying us. We are sanctified, we grow, we mature, not in a straight line, if you haven't been here the last few sessions. It's more like a roller coaster ride, isn't it, with some spiritual highs and some spiritual lows. But we are saved, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.13, through what? Sanctification. We've got to travel sanctification road. And we will travel sanctification road to get to heaven. And we are sanctified in three ways. First of all, by the saints, by those children, by those young men, those young women, those older women, those older men in our lives, in our immediate family of God that we worship with. So we're sanctified by the saints. We're sanctified by the scriptures. We're sanctified by the Spirit of God. I gave this illustration. I think it, it is a, a good illustration of sanctification that when we are born again, we're like a big block of marble. And the Holy Spirit is a master artist who looks at that block of marble and he says, I want this block of marble to look just like Jesus. So he takes out his chisel which is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And He begins to chip away at our sin. He begins to chip away at our shortcomings. He begins to chip away at the things that stand between us and Christ's likeness. And He begins to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus. And the saints of God walk along with us to encourage us through that sometimes joyful, sometimes painful, sometimes difficult process until eventually either Christ comes or we come to this point in our life, which we're going to talk about tonight, 
It's not going to be depressing, so you know, just hang on. We come to this point and we are glorified. Now, if we've been born and we have been born into a family and we have grown and we've matured, what is expected of us? You know the guy that meets the girl and they are in their 20s. What's the question they always get asked when they become an item? When are you two going to get married? And then when they get married in just a few months, it seems, everybody begins to ask the question, when are you going to have a... And then they have a boy... Let's just assume they have a boy, and it's not too many months after they have the boy that people begin to ask, when are you going to have another one, right? And then let's just say this time they have a girl. Then they get pregnant again, and then people ask, don't you know where these things are coming from, right? Because there's a rule in our society that you only have a boy and you only have a girl. And if you have two boys, then you get to try one more time for a girl. Or if you have two girls, you get to try one more time for a boy. If you fail that time, you're just out, unless you're us. Then you get stares everywhere you go, right? But it's just common sense that when we're born and we are part of a family and we grow and we mature, it's expected that we will reproduce. Think about the series of miracles. The series of miracles that happen. That we're born. That we... We flourish in a family. We grow. We mature. And then eventually we give birth. And the cycle continues. That's what it should be like in the spiritual realm as well. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, to again, to two passages of Scripture. I know this is odd for me, but I only have a few sessions, so we're going to do the best we can. Turn to Matthew 28. And then also, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 2. And we're going to look at both of these passages of Scripture as we think about the miracle of reproduction in the spiritual realm. <clears throat> because along this path of sanctification, it's not just about us. It's not just about the saints helping us. It's not just about the, the Scriptures and the Spirit molding us. It's also about others. It becomes about seeing others brought to the point where they too are born from above, where they too are brought into the family of God, where they too are adopted into the family. It's it's about others. It's about reproduction. And there's two passages of Scripture that I want us to see. The first, obviously, is Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse number 18. We know it probably by heart. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We see right off the bat that there's a master. He doesn't say I have more authority than anyone on earth. He doesn't say I have more authority than anyone on heaven. He says I have all authority in heaven. And I have all authority on earth. And if Jesus has all authority then there's no reason for us to try to form a committee meeting to sit down and discuss some kind of compromise with Him. There is no compromise. There, are, there is no room for committee meetings with Jesus. If Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth, then Jesus is our master, Jesus is our boss, Jesus is our Lord, and we don't have any right to do anything but whatever He bids us do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go therefore. 
We see the Master gives us a mission. And the mission is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That is the mission. The mission is to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and then teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us to observe. Now, I know you've heard this before, and I'll say it again. The core of the Great Commission is not to make disciples of as many people as possible. The core of the Great Commission is not for us to go and make disciples of as many people as possible, our neighborhoods, our communities, let's try to fill our churches up. The core of the Great Commission is to make disciples of as many peoples as possible. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And that word nation is literally pontata ethne. It's referring to people groups. It's referring to people with distinct languages, with distinct cultures. So Jesus is not saying to us, go and make disciples of as many people as you can make disciples of. He's ultimately saying, go and make disciples of all of the people groups on planet Earth. Now, am I saying that it is not good to make disciples of as many people as you can? Is it good to make disciples of as many people as you can? Yes, but that's not the core of the Great Commission. We're missing something if we leave the Great Commission there. It's good to make disciples, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is making disciples locally, us. But I want you to see that the core of the Great Commission is to make disciples of as many people groups as possible. And we see this in Paul's ministry. Because what does Paul do? He goes into a place, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches the gospel, he pulls out some believers, he establishes a church, he usually leaves somebody behind to put a pastor and elders in place, and then he moves on, and then he moves on, and then he moves on, and he begins to write letters to Rome saying, take up an offering because when I come to you, I want you to send me to Spain because I want to go where they have not yet heard the gospel. I don't want to build on anyone else's foundation. I want to keep going to new ground. Why does he keep wanting to go to new ground because he understands that the Great Commission is not just about making disciples of as many people as possible. He's wanting to make disciples of all the peoples that he can, all the nations that he can, all the people groups that he can, because he knows that Jesus said when all of the nations have heard this gospel, then the end will come. When this mission is complete, the end will come. We have a master. He's given us a mission. And then he's also in the latter part of verse 20, given us the means. Thank God for internet, right? Without internet, we could never reach the world. But that's not what he says. Thank God for air-conditioned buildings, padded pews, Lifeway Christian resources. Without them, we could never reach the world. Thank God for television preachers and folks who wear fancy suits and cufflinks. If we, we just couldn't do it without them. No. What does he say? Lo, I... And with you, even to the end of the age. We have the means. And the means is nothing that man can provide. The means is Jesus Christ himself. And he says, I will be with you as you go about my business, making disciples, engaging the nations. I'll be with you until the end. That's the Great Commission. Now, part of the Great Commission does imply that we should not be ignoring 
those around us for the sake of those out there, the least reached. Our tendency probably is more so to ignore the least reached for those around us because those around us can actually come to our church and put money in the plate and you know, fill a seat and become a stat for the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm just being honest, especially speaking as pastors. Our tendency is often to ignore the nations for the sake of those within our arms' reach. And that's wrong. But it's also wrong to ignore people within arms' reach for the sake of the nations. That word go, therefore, in the literal Greek implies as you are going. Make disciples of all the nations. So you're all, Jesus is already expecting us to be going where we are. As you're going... Make sure you're going to the least reached peoples on planet earth. As you're going, make sure you're going to the ends of the earth, to the nations. And we see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this idea of the importance of us going within arm's reach. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 2, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. Timothy. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see what's happened? Paul has shared with Timothy. Timothy is to share with faithful men. And those faithful men are expected to share with others also. That's four generations right here in 2 Timothy 2.2. Imagine what it would be like if this was our reality as we are going to engage the nations, as we are going to try to get the gospel to the least reached peoples on planet earth, as we're praying for the unreached, as we're giving towards the unreached, as we are trying to go get to the unreached. Imagine if as we are going, we were seeking, like Paul, to have four generations of disciples to reproduce and become spiritual fathers like Paul was to Timothy, his son in the faith. To reproduce and become spiritual grandfathers like Paul was to Timothy's faithful man that he was imparting truth to. Or like the Apostle Paul, to reproduce and become spiritual great-grandfathers to the others also that those faithful men that Timothy reached would be engaging. Dawson Trotman, I don't know how many of you have heard of Dawson Trotman. He was the founder of the Navigators. He died back in 1950, I think trying to rescue somebody from drowning. And um, he wrote a little booklet called Born to Reproduce. Dawson Dropman says, we are born to reproduce. We're born again to reproduce. And I know we've heard this. I, I know you've heard it from me. And I know my focus is generally out there, the least reached peoples, right? The unreached peoples, those who have not heard the name of Jesus. You've heard that from me. And probably one of my shortcomings, or most likely one of my shortcomings, is more of the, of the, of the local arm's length discipleship and evangelism. So what I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me. Every sermon I ever preach, I'm preaching to myself. I'm just like telling you what God's slapping me with, and you just get, you get sideswiped with whatever He's swiping me with. So don't hear me telling you, this is what I'm doing, you need to do it. You need to hear me say, this is what the Scripture's saying, we all need to get on board. Because I think we hear sometimes, but we don't hear. Maybe spiritual hard of hearing. You heard about the man who uh, went to the, his 
doctor, and he said, I got a problem, doctor. My wife, she can't hear nothing. Talk to her all the time. She never answers. I can't convince her. She needs to go see you and try to get a hearing aid. Or, I mean, there's just no hope. What do I do? And the doctor said, I tell you what you do. You go in to the, to the house this evening. You walk in the front door, and you say, honey, what's for dinner? Normal tone of voice. And if she doesn't answer you, you walk a little closer, you know, you can do it again, and, and you do it again until you finally get an answer from her and say, Honey, I have recorded every time I've said, ask you what's for dinner, and you, you didn't hear me. We need to go to the doctor. He says, Okay. So he goes home, opens the front door, he stops, he says, Honey, what's for dinner? Nothing. So he makes his way through the foyer and kind of gets to the edge of the, of the dining room. He's like, Honey, what's for dinner? Still nothing. He passes through the dining room. He gets to the door of the kitchen. She's in there doing her thing. He says, honey, what's for dinner? Still no answer. He moves halfway across the kitchen. Honey, what's for dinner? She still doesn't answer. He finally walks right up behind her and says, honey, what's for dinner? And she turns around and says, for the fifth time, we're having spaghetti. <laughs> Sometimes, y'all didn't know I could tell a joke, did you? All these years. They're all corny. That's why I don't tell them. <clears throat> we hear it, we hear it, we hear it, we hear it. And I think sometimes we're like this guy, just spiritually hard of hearing. I mean, the, this gospel commission, this great commission, this command of Jesus has been given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. Five times in the Scriptures. Jesus says, go make disciples. Go preach the gospel of all creation. Re preach repentance and remission of sins from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. As, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Go and be witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Five times He makes it very clear that this is what we are supposed to be about as we travel Sanctification Road, pulling other people through the narrow gate and onto the straight way as we make our way to the celestial city. How can we reproduce? There's three major steps and a few minor ones we'll talk about. First major step. As we think about being spiritual great-grandfathers, spiritual great-grandmothers, we need to repent. We don't need to jump over this one. If it's been commanded in Scripture and we're not reproducing, then isn't it sinful not to reproduce? I mean, if God tells Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if Adam and Eve say, nah, not today. I don't think we're going to do that right now. That's disobedience, isn't it? So for those of us that have been spiritually born again, if Jesus says to us, be fruitful and multiply, go and make disciples, and we say, well, I got other things pressing right now. Is that not disobedience? And we need to repent. If we've sinned, we need to repent. Robert Coleman, who wrote The Master Plan of Evangelism, said, A barren Christian is a contradiction. A tree is known by its fruit. Let me give you four quick sins that cause us not to reproduce. One is unconfessed sin. We have sin in our hearts. We have sin in our lives. We have sin on our lips. We have sin in our minds that we don't confess and get right with the Lord, and that puts a big major blockade between any motivation, desire, or hope to evangelize anyone. So one of the reasons some of us never even 
think about evangelizing, never think about sharing the gospel, never think about reproducing, as we've got an illness, and it's called unconfessed sin. And it makes us infertile. Secondly, fear of man. Fear of man, we're just afraid of men. We fear man more than we fear God. We don't want them to look at us wrong, think of us wrong, or treat us wrong. So we fear man. We need to confess and repent. Lack of spiritual purpose is the third one. We live our lives in order to get a good education so that we can get a good job, so that we can buy a good house in a good part of town and drive good cars and wear good clothes and have a good size 401k so that we can retire and we can die one day. That's what we live our lives to do. And on the side, we get enamored with sports and we get enamored with video games and we get enamored with social media and we get enamored with likes and shares and TikTok video dances and we get enamored with all of these things and we do not live with eternal purpose. And that is sinful to waste the life that God has given us with such trivial things. And all the money and all the houses and all of the cars and all of the clothes and all of the TikTok videos are all going to burn up one day in the end. But what will remain is the gold and the silver things that we have invested in the kingdom of God. So we need to repent of our lack of purpose. And then fourthly, busyness and religious activity. Ever thought about this? That Satan puts some of his effort into getting the Christian busy, but not producing? Busy going to church, busy going to Sunday school, busy going to D group, busy going to this special event here, busy going to that special event there, busy giving the money, busy singing the songs, busy following this, busy following that, busy with this meeting, busy with that meeting, busy, 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 and not busy producing anything. We need to confess for being busy with religious activity, but productive inactivity. So that's really step one. Just to, to admit, we are not producing as God has left us here to produce. We're not making disciples as God has left us here to make disciples. He has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. He's placed us within a family where we can flourish. He is sanctifying us by His Spirit and by the Word of God, and He's doing all of this so that we can reproduce, and we are not reproducing. And we need to repent. After we repent, the second major step in reproducing is to sow. Jesus said a sower went out to sow his seed. Some fell on the rocky soil, some fell on the shallow soil, some fell among the thorns, some fell on good ground. The sower sowed the seed. What does effective sowing look like? I want us to think about the, there's four elements of effective sowing. First of all, and we jump over this one often, is to pray. Pray. Psalm 122, 5 and 6, those who sow in tears, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you know why this guy's weeping? Because generally when it came time to plant the seed, you had, the wheat, you had already eaten all the wheat. And here's the father who's telling his wife, 
He's telling his children, no, 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 you're not going to cook that much. We're getting close to the end of the, of the time period, getting close to, to planting time. I've got to have seed to plant. I've got to have seed to plant. And his wife's going, but the children are hungry. The children are hungry. He says, we've got to save this seed to plant. And then I can imagine his children have come to a point where they, we've run out of food. Well, Father, we're almost out of wheat, Father. And you, you're taking our wheat. You're taking our bread. And the father goes and he begins to scatter the seed and he's sowing in tears because this is all that he has. This is it. His children are going to go hungry. His wife's going to go hungry. But he takes that last bit of seed and he sows it with tears. And Jesus says, the Bible says, he's going to reap with joy. We have a harvest. We get to live another year. In the spiritual realm, if we're not sowing with an emotional connection to the lost. How do we expect to bring forth a harvest? So we begin with prayer. And, and here's what I want you to pray. Here's what I want to pray. I'm the guy who read John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life book, and it kind of messed my life up in a sense. And here's why. Because when I read Don't Waste Your Life, I think I've got to do something so unparalleled, something so world-changing, world-impacting, or my life's going to be a waste. So you can invest your time, you can invest your energy, you can invest your prayers in trying to change the big, huge world that you failed to do the little things right in front of you, and inadvertently, you waste your life chasing after something big when you ought to be focusing on something little to keep from wasting your life. You need to be focusing on the, the minor things right there in your face. The basic things right in your face to keep from wasting your lives. Does that make sense? And some of us are looking way out there for something huge. We want to make a huge impact. When we need to be dealing with, with just what's right here in front of us. Something small. Not something big. We don't need a crusade. We don't need a tent crusade to not waste our life. We need one. So here's what I want us to pray. I want us to pray... And make it a matter of prayer that God would give us a man. Ladies, don't you pray that prayer. Especially if you're married. Don't you pray that prayer. You already got a man, right? Men, pray that God would give you a man. And women, pray that God would give you a woman. Just one man. Just one woman. That you can pour into. And put point towards Christ and lead towards Christ, and lead in Christ. Just one. Not tent revival. Not for my sermon video to go viral. But just one. Start with prayer. What do we do after we pray? We speak. If we're going to sow, we speak. We pray and we speak. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send something upward, and we're going to pray. And then... We're going to speak. And what are we going to speak? Where that arrow is pointing, I'll give you a clue. We're going to speak the gospel. There's a quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that goes like this, Preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. It's a little pithy quote, but it's not very theologically sound because you can preach the gospel through how you live your life day after day after day after day and nobody's going to get saved because of that. Nobody's going to say, wow, they seem to 
manage their money well. They seem to dress modestly. They seem to go to church every Sunday. They seem to have it all together. I think I'll be a follower of Jesus. No, it's not how it works. You don't speak the gospel with your life only. You have to speak the gospel with your lips. People have to hear the gospel in order to be born again. Romans 10, 14. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So we don't just live the gospel. Yes, we should live the gospel. We don't just live the gospel, though. We have to speak the gospel. We have to open up our mouths and preach. And don't let that word preach throw you off, because some of you are automatically going, well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not called to be a preacher. I know what you think of when you see the word preach. But but I, I looked through this New Testament, and I looked up every time the word preach, preached, preaching, Proclaim, proclaiming, proclaimed is used. And I counted roughly 109 times. And out of those 109 times, virtually every time the word is used, it either clearly, clearly indicates or could indicate proclaiming the gospel in the marketplace, in the streets, and to the lost. There's only three or four times the word preach, preached, proclaim is used in the New Testament where it is clearly, emphatically, and only speaking about preaching and teaching to the church. You get that? So when you hear preach, don't think about some guy in a suit and a tie standing up in front of the congregation waxing eloquent. When you hear the word preach in the New Testament, think about opening your mouth and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we speak. John 3, 11, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And what do we know? We know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we speak it. The gospel consists of four elements. Don't miss one of them. The first element is God. God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. God is sinless. God is absolutely pure, and His standard for us is absolute purity, perfection, holiness, and righteousness. God is holy. Secondly, we are not holy. We have all sinned and come short of God's glorious standard. We are not perfect. We are not sinless. We are not righteous. We are not pure. We are not perfect. We're not like God. We've fallen short of His standard for us. God's holy. We're not holy. Thirdly, Christ. Christ came to make us holy. He came to this earth and He lived a sinless, spotless, perfect, holy life in our place. He went to the cross and there on the cross He shed His blood in order to cleanse us from all of our sin. He was buried in a borrowed tomb on Sunday morning. He rose from the grave so that we could respond and be made holy. God's holy. We're not holy. Christ came to make us holy and we can be made holy if we will hear this message, believe this message, and embrace this message by turning from our sin and putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. We just speak that gospel message. We speak what we know. Dawson Trotman said, Load your heart with this precious seed, and you will find that God will direct you to those whom you can lead to Christ. There are many hearts ready for the gospel now. So we pray for God to bring us a man. We pray for God to bring us a woman. And then we open up our mouths and we speak what we know. We speak 
the gospel. So we pray, and then we speak what we know, the gospel, and then we speak something else. And I'm going to point right here. We testify. John 3.11, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. You see, when we, are, when we are trying to sow the gospel seed, yes, we want to pray that God will help us, that God will bring the right person into our path, the one He's wanting us to share with, and we want to share with Him what we know, the good news of Jesus Christ. But we also want to testify to Him what we are experiencing in the midst of Sanctification Road. What is your testimony? Your testimony doesn't have to be just how you came to faith in Jesus. Your testimony can be how Jesus rocked your world last week. And how Jesus brought you to repentance last week. And how Jesus brought you peace last week. And how Jesus rescued you last week. Testify of how the gospel is proving to be an agent of change and influence in your life. If we're going to sow the seed, we pray, we look back to the cross and we speak of what we know in the cross and we look at our path and we, and we testify to how God is working in our lives now. And then fourthly, we persevere. We keep pressing forward. John 3.11 again, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we've seen, and Jesus says, and you do not accept our testimony. There's a little clue there beyond the fact that he said, I'm going to send you out a sheep among wolves and all those other things. Don't accept our testimony. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Acts 1.8, Jesus says you will be witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The Greek word there for witnesses, listen carefully. The Greek word for witnesses is the word martyro. Martyro. So think about this. The word martyro sounds like the word what? Martyr. And what, what do we think of when we think of martyr? We think of someone who has been persecuted for this cause of Christ. We think of someone who has died in their work for Christ. We think of a martyr, right? We've taken that word martyro and we've made it about someone who dies for Jesus. But when Luke penned those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he wrote martyro, he wasn't thinking about people dying for Jesus or being persecuted for Jesus. He was thinking about exactly what the Bible says, a witness for Jesus. Now why would the, a word that originally was translated witnesses all of a sudden be closely identified with someone who suffers and dies for Jesus because the witnesses in Acts chapter 1 quickly became martyrs. It's not easy. It's difficult. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not going to be easy, so it's going to take perseverance. It's going to take steadfastness in the midst of difficulty. But when we are prayerfully, prayerfully armed with the gospel message and our testimony of experience and perseverance, we have everything we need to reproduce. And this is how the church overcomes and advances the gospel. Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. 
because of the word of their testimony. That's their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. That's their perseverance. You see that? So we want to sow. We want to repent and just admit we've not been focusing on what Christ has left us here to focus on. And we need to sow the seed prayerfully speaking what we know, testifying to our experience, and persevering until, thirdly and lastly, we reap. We reap. If we're to see a 2 Timothy 2, 2 type of reproduction, where we have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, we have to bring the harvest into the barn and not leave it in the field. We have to disciple the one who responds to our gospel sowing, our seed sowing. Jesus said, not just go and make converts, but go and make what? Disciples. And you teach them to obey everything. Is there, is there something wrong with sowing a hundred tracks on Saturday and sending them home with folks that you'll never see again? I'm going to tell you something. God is sovereign enough that He can take that track, He can put it into the right person's hands, they can go home, they can come to faith in Jesus, and He can bring somebody else that you never hear of, you never know of, into their life to continue to disciple them. He can do that, and He does often do that. But, it doesn't negate the reality that we need to have someone that we can bring to Jesus that we can disciple and teach. If you seek to make disciples, you find out that you can't get too big for your britches. Billy Graham. Billy Graham had his crusades and just had thousands and thousands of people walk forward. And Billy Graham saw early on in his ministry that the thousands and thousands of people that walked forward, the vast majority of them never showed up at a church. They never followed up with baptism. They never became faithful in church. They just walked away. Now some did, and we're thankful for them. But he realized that, and he called Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators that I was quoting earlier, and he said, I want you to come and somehow follow up with these people and help disciple these people, come up with some way to disciple them so that they don't walk away. And Dawson Trotman said, that's impossible. There's no way you can disciple thousands of people. The perfect incarnate Son of God Himself had 12. And He really focused on three of those 12. So what makes us think we're going to, I can disciple a thousand. If we stop and think about it, many of us have done a lot of things. Taught Sunday school, served as a deacon, served on staff, taken mission trips, handed out tracts, worked in vacation Bible school, served in multiple areas, and yet most of us can't point to one person, one person that we led to Christ, discipled, and is still walking with Him. Now, I can point to some people that I've led to Christ. And I can point to some people that I've discipled. And I can point to some people that are still walking with Jesus. But I've been racking my brain to see if I can even point to one person that I personally led to Jesus, that I personally discipled, that, I am, that is still walking with Jesus right now. Is that such a big deal? Dawson Trotman tells this story from when he led the Navigators. 
This is the early 1900s. He said, some time ago, I talked to 29 missionary candidates. They were graduates of universities or Bible schools or seminaries. As a member of the board, I interviewed each one over a period of five days, giving each candidate from half an hour to an hour. Among the questions I asked, one was, how many persons do you know by name today who were won to Christ by you and are living for Him? The majority had to admit that they were ready to cross an ocean, learn a foreign language, but they had not won their first soul who was going on with Jesus Christ. A number of them said that they got many people to go to church. Others said they had persuaded some to go forward when the invitation was given. And I asked, are they living for Christ now? And their eyes dropped. These questions do not apply to missionaries and prospective missionaries only. They apply to all of God's people. Every one of His children ought to be a reproducer. In every Christian audience, I'm sure there are men and women who have been Christians for 5, 10, 20 years, but who do not know of one person who is living for Jesus Christ today because of them. Someone may say, I gave out 100,000 tracts. Well, that's good. But how many sheep did you bring in? I want us to just stop and think about that for just a minute. Of all the things that we do, that we're busy with, that we're involved in, how many sheep have we brought in? Do you want your team to make it to the 50-yard line 30 times in the football game? You would rather them score one touchdown than to make it to the 50-yard line 20 times, only to punt, right? The touchdown is what counts, not the 50-yard line. It's better to make it to heaven, make it to the touchdown, to the end zone, with one or just a few, than to lose 100 at the halfway point. Robert Coleman said the best work is done with a few. Better to give a year or so to one or two people who learn what it means to conquer for Christ than to spend a lifetime with a congregation just keeping the program going. Victory is never won by the multitudes. That doesn't sound too impressive. It doesn't, but if we do it well, it can make a difference. Jesus took 12 men, lost one, and still turned the world upside down, didn't he? Let me just read you this last illustration from Dawson and Trotman and we'll be done. He says, suppose someone desires to be a spiritual father. He asks God to give him a man to teach. As he teaches his first man, they each start praying for another man. By the end of six months, each starts teaching another. At the end of the year, there are just four. Each may also teach a Bible class, or maybe they help in a street evangelism meeting. But their main concern is their man and how he's doing. They encourage one another. Let's not let anything sidetrack us. Let's give the gospel out to a lot of people, but let's see at least one man through. At the end of two years, there's 16. At the end of five years, there's 1,024. And after 15 and a half years, there are more than 2 billion. But wait. Suppose the first man trained gets sidetracked, washes out, and does not produce his first man. Fifteen and a half years later, you can cut your two billion down to one billion because the devil caused that first man to be sterile. I think it sounds like a small thing to find yourself a man or to find yourself a woman and to disciple them through to productivity. 
but it can be a really, really big thing. We are born into the family to mature and to reproduce. So let us repent of our infertility. Let's sow the seed by praying, speaking, testifying, and persevering until we reap a harvest. And let's make it our goal to get our harvest into the barn. Amen? Let's think about over the next six months. Are you willing to pray that God would bring someone? Young people, are you willing to pray that God would bring someone into your life? to share with, and to disciple. Dawson Trotman said, Man, where is your man? Women, where is your woman? Where's the one whom you led to Christ and is now going on with him? Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for your good news and your gospel and the testimonies that you've given us, the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs, of spiritual life. Pray that you would help us to see that we need to be praying for the least reached peoples. We need to be giving towards reaching the least reached peoples. We need to be going to the least reached peoples, both in foreign countries and and those here among us from other lands that have never heard and understood the gospel. Help us to also Take responsibility for the reality that we need to be reproducing as we go. Burden us to find that man or that woman. Help us to speak the truth in love. To see a soul saved and discipled and reproducing. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.